We are already halfway through a four-week series that we are calling Whole. And in this series, we are looking particularly at a passage out of Mark chapter 12, and here that is, says this, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, when I launched this series a couple weeks back, I told you that the Christian life just seems impossible. It's like a thousand plates that we got to spin and all these duties and responsibilities and there's no way we can do them all and plates are crashing and breaking and we're frustrated. And here Jesus is saying, it all boils down to just one thing. Love God. Love God. That is it. Remember, he created us not for religion. He created us for relationship. Love is relational language. And so Jesus is saying that God does not want your loveless religious activity, your religious duty. He wants you. He wants all of you, the whole of you. He wants you whole. That's what we were made for. to to jettison our idols and to have God right at the center of our lives, to love him with our whole selves, not holding anything back, to be whole. So there's no amount of religion that can make up for a lack of love for God. But when we live this out, then we become whole people. I told you this, that to love God wholly is to become whole. This is what life is all about. Now, in that passage then, Jesus gave these four categories, heart, soul, mind, strength. And we are walking through each of those. Two weeks ago, I talked about the heart. Last week, Pastor Jared gave a great message about the soul. And so today we talk about the mind. And I've got to warn you, it'll be a little bit different. A little bit different. That's okay. We'll start with this. The, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, right? So the Greek word for mind in Mark chapter 12 is exactly what you would expect it to be. It's the center for reasoning and understanding and thinking, how we process and analyze information. That's the mind. But what's curious, remember, in our passage, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. But if you go and look at Deuteronomy 6, it does not have the word mind. It says heart, soul, strength. That's it. But by the time Jesus is saying this, remember Israel has been conquered by the Romans. Greek language, Greek culture has influenced a ton. You see the Hebrews, in their language, they would view mind as part of the heart. And so by saying heart, he covered them both. But by this time in in history, if he does not say mind, he would have left out a big aspect of whole, of all of us, of all of you. And so Jesus specifies mind separately. But what's interesting about that is then Jesus, he could have just left it off the table. 
He didn't. So Jesus overtly and intentionally specified that to be a disciple of Jesus, we're supposed to love God with our whole mind. That's important. Because what I'm going to do today is I'm going to take you to school. Okay? This one's going to be intellectual. It's going to be heady. We're going to be in class. Some of you are like, "Mm -mm, don't like that. Sounds too intellectual. Could I just point out, we're talking about loving God with our mind. Mind, people, mind, right? So we're going to apply as we learn on this one. Apply on the fly, okay? So we're talking history here. I, I want you to know something. Christianity was an intellectual faith. Christianity by its nature is an intellectual faith. You understand, our whole faith is based on an event in history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which either happened or didn't. Our faith is not based on a feeling and it's not based on a philosophy. Our faith is a historical fact. It either happened or it didn't, so it's scientific. It is fact-based. It is truth-based. It is arguable. Not meaning that I doubt it, but meaning you could argue for it or against it. It's arguable. It's about the mind. And so at the very birth of missions, when the apostle Paul starts taking this great gospel message city to city, what he did when he got there is he would reason with people. If they were Jews, he'd often start with the Jews. Now, Paul is a Jew. Christianity came out of Judaism. And so we shared a common source in the Jewish scriptures we call the Old Testament. And so Paul would begin, look, look, Acts 17, verses 2 to 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Pretty intellectual, heady stuff, actually. He reasoned with them from the scriptures because they shared that common ground. Now, what would happen when Paul would talk to non-Jews? These pagans. Well, they didn't have that same common ground in the scriptures, so he didn't use that. It's very clear. Instead, we see Paul reasoning just the same, but what he did is he appealed to natural law, the order of the universe. He would quote pagan or non-Christian poets and scholars. At one point, he even, his starting point is, I saw one of those pagan idols you have, and he starts with the inscription of a pagan idol. And he worships, and he reasons with them. He used his mind. That's how it all got started, people. And, and the apostle Peter would say, we're supposed to do the same. So here's Peter in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, cool. How do you do that? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. (laughs) We forget that last part sometimes. But it's about defense and reason. It's the mind, right? And so Christianity from its very beginning has this rich history of the intellectual life, theology and knowledge of the Bible and biblical analysis and Christian philosophy, apologetics, all this stuff. So much so that throughout Christian history, if there was like, you know how you get the kid who's the top of his class, right? Smart prodigy kind of kid. That kid in the church, dude's going to seminary. Dude, you're, you're going to say, you're, if you're a prodigy, you're going to be a pastor or a theologian. That's where you went. 
And, and so we have this history of brilliant minds. In fact, I jotted down a list. Uh, I just did it kind of off the cuff, so they're not in historical order or any order. But here's Chesterton, Calvin, Augustine. Now, if you're a pretentious person, like you're one of those people that says niche instead of niche, you would say Augustine, okay? So Augustine. Bonhoeffer, Luther, Schaefer, Aquinas, Athanasius, Barth, Wesley, Knox, and my boy C.S. Lewis. All these are brilliant, brilliant minds using their minds in service of the Lord. And to give you an example of how that went down, do you know the Cyrillic alphabet? This thing? All right. Do you know how we got the Cyrillic alphabet? I will tell you. In the ninth century, there were two Greek monks. One was named Cyril, Cyrillic alphabet, Cyril, and the other is Methodius. They were doing missions to the Slavic people. They wanted to translate the Bible and other texts into the language to undergird the mission there. The problem is they had a language, but they were illiterate. They, ha- they didn't even have an alphabet. So these missionaries made an alphabet. Like as part of their service to God, like, I guess we're going to have to make an alphabet. And today that's the alphabet for Russian, Ukrainian, Bulgarian, Serbian, like they all use this alphabet created for Christian missions. That's loving the Lord with all your mind. What do you do? (laughs) Well, I figured out where the best place is to park in the lot so I can get out early on Sunday morning. That's how I use my mind and my faith, right? How many of you are wondering where that is right now, hoping that I would share that, right? I'm praying you get an incurable rash, right? (laughs) Just so you know, just so you know. Anyway, so using the mind in missions, in your faith. Now, sometimes you don't always go into vocational Christian ministry, but still very, very smart dudes in our history. If you're a part of the sciences, you might recognize a few of these names. Roger Bacon, Johannes Kepler, Galileo Galilei, Rene Descartes, Blaise Pascal, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, Lord Kelvin. Believers in Jesus who loved them immeasurably and used their mind to serve the world. That's who those... In fact, Galileo was quoted this way. He said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. Spot on. See, Christianity is an intellectual faith. It's a faith of the mind, but sadly, that's not all the history. The history took a little bit of a turn, and now we have what I would call mindless Christianity. How did we get there? Well, there are several influences throughout history. One of the big ones was the Age of Enlightenment. That started around the 1600s. I just gave you a date. You're like, is this on the test? Stop it. Use your mind, people, okay? So 1600s, the age of enlightenment was the age of thinking and reason and science. One of the things, unintended consequences, was that it started to explain everything apart from God. So we start to relegate God out of it. And then uh, uh, as well, it was anti-organized religion because of some of the wars throughout the the years. So uh, many enlightenment thinkers were wonderful Christians. But as the ideas start to get applied, it starts to drive a wedge in between Christianity and the mind. This will become an ever-widening gap. 
continued into the modern era. The modern era brought us the Industrial Revolution, which was a lot of technological advances. One of the results there was travel became much easier with technology, right? You hop on a plane, go around the world. Easy, right? But as technology advances, the world shrinks. And so you get exposed to many more different people and people groups and ideas and religions. And in the process, you go, they can't all be wrong, right? I mean, Christianity can't be the only way. They can't all be wrong, right? And then you get the information age, which is that like exponentially, right? They can't all be wrong. And so then we get stuff like relativism. There is no right and wrong. It's just your truth, my truth, his truth, her truth, postmodernism. And so the only thing that is wrong, there's one thing that's wrong and only one thing, and that's to think you're right. And that's the the cultural ideal now. And so you could state it this way. There are no exclusive truth claims. You realize that's an exclusive truth claim, right? It is self-defeating. It destroys itself. Falls apart. Philosophers know it. But there are, and realize that Christianity makes an exclusive truth claim. And so our culture starts to say, we're silly. Christians are silly. We're wrong. Then you move into the end of the 1800s. Another date, dang it. Uh, you move into the end of the 1800s and liberalism, by that I mean liberal theology, starts to seep into Christianity. Christianity feels threatened, so what we retreated into was fundamentalism. Fundamentalism was a response to people weakening our faith. And what we did that in fundamentalism is we held on to these truths with white knuckles. <clears throat> Now, the good thing is we held on to the truth, but unfortunately, there was not an, uh, a winsome engagement of the cultural mind. But as part of fundamentalism, it also involved a retreat into the Christian bubble. We're going to abandon the public square, and we're going to protect ourselves by retreating from that. And by the way, the public sphere, the pu- public square, that's where the life of the mind is. And we retreated to protect ourselves. There were other influences like the Scopes trial, 1925, can you teach evolution in the public school? Turns out, actually, the fundamentalist Christians won that, but it was a media circus, and as part of that, the media allowed the Christians to just look silly. And so we won the battle, lost the war, and the media's been following on that ever since. So you think about how an evangelical Christian is portrayed in movies and shows and all that. Bumpkins. Backwoods bumpkins, right? Listen, you know there are some weird cult sections of Christianity that pra- practice snake handling as part of their religion. Like in the service, right? <laughs> and we, we hear that and we go, man, those people are idiots. What bumpkins, Right? Just know that for our culture at large, they're us, we're them. Like one category, where the way you look at snake handlers is the way most of our culture looks at us. <laughs> That's uncomfortable, right? We're in a post-Christian society. Now I get that we might have a religious heritage, a religious history to our country, but we're in post-Christianity in our society right now. And so when questions come up like identity, sexuality, homosexuality, transsexuality. Those decisions are made by our culture with no reference to God, the Bible, the church. We are silly as Christians. We don't get a seat at the table. 
Now, there continues to be wonderfully rich Christian thinking and scholarship, but it's just not acknowledged in the public square. So, for example, you have Dan Brown writes the Da Vinci Code, and this brings onto the table the, the Gnostic Gospels, which really draws in a question like the, your trust in the Bible. Can you really trust the Bible? And the Gnostic Gospels are ridiculous. It's easily refuted, but that won't play in the public square. The reasonable response, that's not heard, and the culture just accepts untruth. So here's what happens as a result of all that. The average Christian believer, and I mean in here, the average Christian believer retreats from the mind to the heart. And faith becomes about feelings and experience. It becomes about the subjective, not the objective. And that is, by and large, the Christianity we have today. You can see it really played out in the song. You know the song, He Lives? It's an older one, but here's how it goes. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. Okay, so see, there's the tension. Is this stuff true? Men say it's not. I say it is. So how do we know? Well, he goes, I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. How do I know it's true? Feelings, experience, subjective. Gets even more clear. Here's the chorus. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. Ready for this? You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Nothing to do with mine. You ask me how I know. No, it's not apologetics or history or truth. or the, No, it's just I feel him. That's how I know. Do you see it? And it was a move for safety because while the culture is starting to destroy us, you can maybe debate with me in my mind, but I don't think I can handle that. So I'll retreat to the heart and you can't question my heart. This is a safe place. This is completely subjective. This is my truth, right? And, and so we abandon the mind, we abandon truth, and we end up with a Reader's Digest version of Christianity. It's like cotton candy. It tastes really sweet, but there's no substance to it. And what we've done is we've taken our brain and we put our brain in park, and we got out and we walk by faith. And faith means not the mind. You see that? Now, I know that's a lot, but to sum it up, I'll give you Mark Knoll. Mark Knoll wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Great book on this topic. He said this, The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. Notwithstanding all their virtues, however, American evangelicals are not exemplary for their thinking, and they have not been so for several generations. The historical situation is curious. Modern evangelicals are the spiritual descendants of leaders and movements distinguished by probing, creative, fruitful attention to the mind. That's where we come from. We've just come so far. And so now we have a history of an intellectual faith becoming mindless Christianity. And that's going to result in some problems. Let me sum some of those up. I'll give you a list here. 
Number one, there's a cultural assumption that Christians are stupid. Smart people reject religion. Like atheists are intellectuals. Christians are not intellectuals. That's the cultural assumption out there, right? It's not true, but it's believed. So, so what that means is that the culture doesn't disbelieve Christianity. It disregards. It dismisses, and that's far worse. But that's the cultural assumption. A second thing, it leads to intellectual weakness in Christian leaders, pastors. Okay, so here's how we get there. I told you before, the smart kids were always earmarked for seminary. You're, you're really smart, right? So we're going to send you to seminary. Now, now if somebody is at the top of the class, she's going to be a doctor. She's going to be a doctor, right? Or, or if you're smart and good at math, you're going to be an engineer, right? Or if you're smart and a jerk, a lawyer, right? <laughs> I know we have many lawyers in here. We love you. We don't like you, but we love you, Okay. <laughs> But, but isn't that the case today? Like the smart kids, doctor, engineer, lawyer, or some others, you get the idea. That's pastor? No way. What a waste. What a waste of a good mind, right? And so who are our pastors? Well, they're kind and they're well-intentioned and they walk closely with Jesus. They care a lot about people. Yeah, he's not too bright, but it's okay because it's not about the mind. It's about the heart. Do you see that? So we end up with a weakness there. Now, the problem's not only up here, but it's also out there. So the third thing we end up with is unexamined faith for Christians. So here's how that works out. You, I get some of you aren't Christians yet, you're wrestling with it, but for most of us, we're saying, this stuff is worth my life. This is my life. I am building my life on faith in Jesus. So I'm building my life on something that I desperately hope you don't ask me a difficult question about. Because I got nothing. I'm like two questions away from saying, I don't know but I really like it, right? So, so an unexamined faith. Now, because we have an unexamined faith, that leads to a fourth problem, and that is we are threatened by people's doubts. So when somebody has doubts, we're like, we can't afford it because we're not so sure ourselves. So we haven't applied our minds to this. So we say, hey, would you please quit using your mind, at least in terms of Christianity? Stop having doubts, just believe, which means Belief has nothing to do with the mind. It's all about the heart. <laughs> what? How, how do we get there? All right. Fifth one, and I'll camp here for a bit. We gravitate from the objective. We gravitate away from that towards the subjective. This has a couple different problems with it. Uh, one of the ways it comes out is that when Christians get together, sometimes we don't talk about what does the verse mean we say, what does the verse mean to me? See, I left objective truth of what it means. I would go for subject. Here's what it means to me. Or <laughs> this one's going to tick some of you off, so I'll just take a drink of water. <laughs> we say things like, God is telling me. Or God is saying to me that you should. Okay? What's the problem here? Well, here, how do you know that that's right? Okay. You know what? God's telling me all marriages in here are annulled. All y'all's my wives. I got a huge harem now. You, you pull out your Bible and you go, uh-uh. No, that's not right, Pastor Rick. That's not right. Why? Because you got an objective reference. You go to the Word. And so the way we know these subjective impressions is we go to the objective truth of the Word and say, is it right or not? 
at the end, it has to come back to the objective. But that feels like work, and that's the work of the mind, and I don't want that. So I would rather just go with my subjective feelings and put those words in God's mouth. And that becomes a problem because it can become a form of spiritual manipulation. So if I put my desires in God's mouth and I say, God said this, if you don't obey what I just said, you hate Jesus. <laughs> no, no, no. See, that's, that's going for the subjective over the objective. We've abandoned the mind from our faith. And then an, another result is that we weaken the gospel call. Because the standard for whether or not you should adopt a religion is, has it changed your life and does it give you a warm feeling? Okay, now let me show, let me show that to you, okay? So, so what happens if you encounter a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Buddhist or a Muslim? Should you adopt their religion? Now you got to understand, you'll encounter plenty of Muslims who will say, I got into Islam changed my life, and it really warms my heart. Plenty. So should you become a Muslim? And you'll say no, because it's not objectively true. Right, okay, gotcha. Now, here's how it goes as we share the gospel with people. We say, you should become a Christian. Why? Like, I'm not really good at talking about the truth stuff, but it has changed my life, and it gives me a warm feeling. And if that's all we got, then you're going to meet somebody from a different religion. There you go. You see, the, the, abandoning the objective for the subjective is a problem when we lose the mind. All right, enough on that one. I'll give you one last one. We're mean. And the way this comes about is because because we abandon the mind, when we go back there, when you have somebody that actually does embrace the life of the mind, we're so unused to it that we're clunky and haughty and small and mean. I mean, you know that guy who's a Christian and has really used his mind and he's a jerk, okay? I've been that guy. I have to fight to not be that guy all the time. So, So yeah, this is a problem. Now, what I want to do is, because of that sixth one, I want to take just a moment to talk about the balance between the heart and the mind, because we're supposed to be whole. We're called to be whole. And so we've got to love God with all our heart, got to love God with all our mind. And what you don't have is the option of opting out of one of them, going, yeah, that's not my thing. I'll just do this one. That's not, that's not the option, right? So now some of you are feelers, right? Natural feelers. And two weeks ago when I was talking about the heart, like I was busting thinkers chops, right? Like I'm saying, hey, all of you are feelers. The thing is you just don't apply your feelings to your faith. And all you natural feelers were like, amen, preach it, brother. Get them. Get them. Those thinkers are mean, right? Awesome. Listen, um, I love that you are emotional. I just don't want you to be into emotionalism, right? And you have to realize that now we're in this week talking about the mind and how do you apply your mind to your faith? Do you think, oh yes, you think and you use your mind all the time. You just don't want to use it for your faith. It's amazing how many of you have gotten advanced degrees and all kinds of studies, but you won't apply your mind to your faith. 
And, and so develop a love for God with your mind. It's in the great commandment. You can't ignore it. Now, at this point, all the thinkers are going, amen, preach it, brother, get them. Because those, those feelers are soft, right? So get them, all right. You have an awesome strength gifted by God with a wonderful mind, but you must fan the flames on your heart because when you are all mind and little heart, that's when you're mean, right? And and listen, think of the guy who has all kinds of verses memorized. He knows hermeneutics, how to study the Bible. He knows apologetics and theology and church history. And he's just got all this stuff flowing out and the guy's a jerk. And you just got to know, That does not reflect the heart of God. That is not whole. That is not who we're called to be. So yes, have right theology, but don't be mean and small. To put it this way, let's have sharp minds and soft hearts, not sharp minds and sharp tongues. All right? That's the balance. That's the balance. So now what I want to do is say, okay, what do we do? How do we apply some of this stuff? Well, first, I want you all to embrace the life of the mind in your faith. What we tend to do is separate faith and reason. And and these are actually partners, not opponents. They're they're partners. That gets teased out well by this book, really appropriate this morning, Love Your God With All Your Mind by J.P. Moreland. I'd really recommend this read. And here's something, something that Moreland said in there. While few would actually put it in these terms, faith is now understood as a blind act of will, a decision to believe something that is either independent of reason or that is simply a choice to believe while ignoring the paltry, excuse me, paltry lack of evidence for what is believed. By contrast with this modern misunderstanding, Biblically, faith is a power or skill to act in accordance with the nature of the kingdom of God, a trust in what we have reason to believe is true. We have faith in that which we see as reasonable. Faith and reason work together. They're not opponents. Let me tease it out this way. What if you set a physical goal for the rest of the year. Rest of this 2023, I want you to set a goal for how you're going to grow physically or shrink physically, whichever that is, right? Okay, got that in your mind? Okay, now I want you to set a goal for how you're going to grow intellectually. Now I want you to set a goal for how you're going to grow spiritually. To realize what you just did, number two and three are separate. Intellectual over here, spiritual over there. When I say set an intellectual goal, why is that not a spiritual goal? And when I say set a spiritual goal, why is that not an intellectual goal? They ought to overlap. What we do is we bifurcate these. We create a false dichotomy between them. We commit the logical fallacy of the excluded middle. I'm just trying to show you. Yeah, I got smarts. That's all I'm doing. Right, anyway. so, but we do. We separate those and we shouldn't. Okay? That's number one. Don't separate those. Number two. Use your brain, develop your mind in order to grow as a Christian. What might that look like? Well, you're, you're going to have to read some, okay? Like I, I grew up as a dude. I wasn't a reader. I didn't like reading. I became a Christian. I'm like, oh, I got some reading to do. And so we have a suggested reading list on our website. Read some good books. And then you're probably going to need a, an overview of the whole Bible. 
You're going to need some hermeneutics on how to study the Bible, some apologetics, some theology, some church history, some worldview. And some of you are like, ah, it hurts. It hurts already. Okay, so let me make it simple. Journey. Everything I just listed is baked into the journey. It might be 201 and 301, right? It's 201, 301, it might be. But, but it's baked in there so that start wherever you are and start growing and you will encounter this stuff over the years to grow with your mind. Another option we have for you at our church is called Redemption Academy. I, I wanted this a couple years back and the reason we went in this route is because I don't want just pastors to have theological depth. I want a congregation to have theological depth because this is the priesthood of believers and all of us should use our minds and our faith. And so what it is, is quasi-seminary, well, they're legit seminary courses. We just don't do them for credit. We go through it here. And so that starts again in September to grow with your mind. A third thing you can do is learn some apologetics. Now, I've used that term a few times already. It means rational defenses of the faith. So, well, I just believe it, or the Bible says, but no, what, like, why should I believe that? And so to understand how to persuade somebody with this stuff. But let me give you a caution. Non-Christians are not the enemy. They are deceived. And so be careful that you don't win an argument and lose a heart. Because then you won the battle, but you lost the war. So be careful of that. Sometimes people get apologetics like a shiny new toy and they're a kid swinging a sword around. They're just damaging more than they're helping people, right? You can relax. Know this. Jesus is not threatened. Jesus is not freaking out over their unbelief. Jesus is quite secure. So it is not your job to convince them. It is not your job to argue them into the faith. You will never argue anyone into the faith. All I want to do with apologetics is show them that it is sound, it is reasonable, it is within reach. And then I leave it between them and God. Because sometimes what's going on is it's actually a heart issue for them, but they're masquerading it around as if it's a mind issue. But it's not a mind issue. It's a heart issue. Blaise Pascal has a great quote on this. I mentioned his name was up there earlier. Pascal, great French philosopher and mathematician, gave us Pascal's triangle. That's the philosophical understanding that uh, math philosophy that gives us zeros and ones, making bits, makes computers. Thank you, Pascal, for that. Okay. Wonderful believer in Jesus. Here's what he said. God has given us evidence sufficiently clear to convince those with an open heart and mind. Yet... Evidence sufficiently vague so as not to compel those whose hearts and minds are closed. So learn some apologetics. And listen, it will not only help in winsomely and intellectually helping other people, but it'll help you. As believers in Christ, when you start to study that and you realize, oh my goodness, holy crap, this stuff is true. Yeah. And that'll explode not only in your mind, but also in your heart. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's good for you. Fourth and last, God wins every time. And here's what I mean by that. Loving God with your mind means that when God and our culture disagree, God wins. And 
Some of you who are intellectual in nature, that the more you get into intellectualism, that you start to devolve into the culture more instead of faithfully defending the faith once for all de- delivered to the saints. And so we want to be people that when God and culture disagree, God wins. We do that in a mindful way, not a mindless way. We study, we, we lean into it, but let God win. You have to understand this. If God and culture disagree, which they do all the time, and in your life, in your mind, the culture wins, you're not loving God with all your mind. You're just not. And so let God win. All right. I've thrown a lot at you. Let me, let me just end with this. What's our motivation? Our motivation is not that the world would think we're smart. Some of you are like, good, got that going for me. Check the box. <laughs> Listen. We're not looking for our, our identity or our affirmation from the world. We get that from our God. He gives us our identity. He gives us affirmation. And know this, we're not saved by being smart. We're saved by grace. And we have very limited minds. But we are made in the image of the one who has a phenomenal mind. And Jesus then called us with our limited minds to love God with all our mind. I don't know where you are. Start taking steps forward in that aspect of being whole. And let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your grace that uh, you made us in your image and we stained it and ruined it. And then you just poured out grace and you call us into relationship, not religion. That you would be right in the center of our lives. We would love you wholly and therefore we would become whole. Would you be with us as we get into this awkward area that we've abandoned for far too long of loving you with our mind? Help us make progress there, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.